You are the perfect guest because your autobiography was called The Long Road to Overnight Success, <laughs> which is the entire essence of this podcast. So I want to start right back at the beginning and ask you what you were like as a kid. Were you a class clown? Yeah. Yeah, I was. I, having said that, it's kind of I was in a training ground for it because my, my dad is, is you know still is one of the funniest people I've ever met on earth. And my brother, I've got an older, I'm one of four kids. Um, and... Uh, my sisters and my brother are amusing and, you know, we, we went out of our way to try and make each other laugh. So the kind of our house was a performance space and my mum taught dancers. So the concept of people walking on a stage to entertain people or, you know, having a moment in the spotlight was kind of how our family worked. So, yeah, I, I was the class clown, but in fact, it, it didn't feel like I was the class clown. I was just doing in the class what we would do at home. Do you remember when you first realised, oh, shit, I think I can make people laugh or I think I can entertain people? So there's two there's two parts to that answer. The first time I made an audience laugh, which my dad and mum told me about later. So my first performance, as they title it, I was a kid in nappies, and my parents had a house back then uh, which had polished floorboards, and somehow I'd figured out a little bit of physics where if I went in, they were having it was like a progressive dinner or you know one of those cocktail parties that everyone oh, had yeah. where that big that cupboard that had the whiskey glasses came <laughs> yep. opened and with yep. the mirror back and oh out yeah came. is that called a wet bar or is, something I, I think it, maybe uh, i don't know it sounds mm. so sus now <laughs> I know. I know. Someone says, do you want to go to a web? No. No, I've got children. It was no. also so secretive because it had the, the, the panel that panel. it looked like a normal cupboard and then you pulled it down and I you know, were like, oh, mum's an alco. I know. And it was full of mirrors like the back of a 1980s panel van. It was the sussest looking thing. Why can't that shit just be on a shelf? It's glasses. Because you've got to hide it from, from the neighbours. But everyone knew. But everyone oh, knew where it was. Knew. In fact, everyone would go, I'm going to get out the special whiskey. And mm. I think, no, it's not. It's a special square whiskey bottle that I... I saw my parents pour shit whiskey into. <laughs> it's like a, you know, it looks like a V8 supercar, but inside it, it's actually the engine we stole from a golf cart. Like, what are you doing? Everyone knows. That's You're going to drink it in a minute and wow. it's going to taste like shit. That's really dodgy. And they'll know. <laughs> so anyway, they're having one of those days where mm. that cupboard's open and uh, I ran into the centre of the group of people pulled down my nappy, <laughs> sat my bare ass on the floorboards and farted and it made a <laughs> on the floorboards noise and then got up, laughed and ran out. And Dad, Dad apparently said, that kid is going to be a problem. So that was my first performance that my dad told me I did. But the moment, and, and so it's a three-part answer, the moment I walked out on stage, my mum, as I said, had, had a calisthenic dancing school, still mm. does, and I 
I performed. I went out on stage at the age of. Oh, my joke used to be my, my first performance was at eight. Actually, it was about quarter past eight. <laughs> that was the joke I used to tell when I was a kid. <laughs> I'm doing it now. What am I talking about? Um, and and I went out on stage and dressed as a cowboy, pretended to shoot myself and fall over and fell over backwards, and the audience laughed. And I thought, oh, that was fun. I like I liked that. So that was at eight. But at around exactly the same age, I went to see a thing called the Gang Show, which was a scouting a scouting show, an entertainment show, mm-hmm. kind of a variety show, I suppose you'd call it. And I went and saw that, and there were kids. I was in scouting, still am. I'm a chief scout yeah. in Victoria, as we speak. And I went and saw kids my age, just a touch older than me, um, running around a stage with an orchestra in the orchestra pit. Two, two and a half thousand people in the audience watching them on the Palais Theatre in Melbourne on this enormous stage and said to my mum, I want to do that. So I auditioned the next year and got in and that was kind of the start of it for me and never wanted to walk away from it, you know, found found my drug. You know, my drug wasn't being sold in alleyways, it was being performed on stages. Was there ever any, any time that you flirted with anything else or were you pretty single-minded in your focus to this is what I want to do? I, I came from an era where the parenting was, you know, you've got to always have something to fall back on. Mm. Um, obviously our parents, you know, my dad came from an incredibly poor family. He was he was born and ra- not born in the tent, but he was raised in a tent until he was 21. Wow. So a lot of the lessons and that was it's not me. This is not unique to me. The lessons of you've got to you know, make sure you've always got some skills behind you. I permanently felt like I don't even know if I've shaken it fully yet. My partner thinks I haven't. Um that you've always got to, you know, keep things on the boil and learn oh, yeah. new skills. And and we, you, know, you and I both know in entertainment that's that's the clever way to do it. Mm. Um, but in life I'm the same. I accumulated licences and driver's licences. You know, I've got, I've got a licence to drive pretty much everything on the road. So, well, everything actually. Mm. So, um, but the same with backstage skills. I learned to do lighting and sound. And I was, a, in the end, I was a pyrotechnician for, you know, Bon, bon Jovi, Guns N' Roses, ACDC, lighting design for film, television, theatre, corporate and rock and roll, um, event management. So I learnt every component of entertainment. So I always wanted to be an actor, to answer your question. Mm. Never wanted to do anything but that, but always made sure I was doing everything and anything around it. So I've always been in entertainment. One of the perils of uh, of parents seeing their kids wanting to get into acting is that they often try and talk them out of it. If they've, especially if they've got nothing to do. Well, I mean, actually, if you've got something to do with entertainment, you know that it's quite tough. You might talk them out, but it's quite a scary industry for a parent to see their kid want to aspire Walk to. Into, yeah. Because the assumption is you're not going to make it. Correct. It's going to be too hard. If you do make it, you will be in the minority rather than the majority. Obviously, for you, you had showbiz parents in some way, or yeah. parents that were around it. Was that a benefit, or did they want to talk you out of it? They never talked us out of it. In fact, what they did was they promoted the idea that you can do anything you want to do. Um, I felt my mum was the same, and geez, I loved it. But at the same time, I took it so literally that I've tried too many things. Yeah. I wish she'd said you could do A, B, C, and D, and that's it. That's it. Not the whole yeah. alphabet because I tried it yeah. all. I could do anything. You mean I can eat the moon? <laughs> yeah. like, like you a, give it a crack. How limited is the? Yeah, anything? exactly. Well, yeah, you could be the president of the United <laughs> States. Well, now you know anyone can have the job. Turns that's out it. They were right. This is it. So, uh, yeah, I, look, I I love the idea of. Because, I mean, again, this, this, you can answer this two ways, which is, you know, anything is possible with a whole lot of effort. But 
you then got to go, right, so how much effort are we talking about? You go, well, you tell me the thing that you're thinking of doing and I'll tell you. And mm. they go, I want to be a full-time entertainer and be paid well to do it and I want to be, you know, kids now, so I want to be famous and I want to be rich. And you go, oh, okay, well, that's your aim. All right, so the answer is still the same. You can do anything. When I say you've got to work hard, you better work at it nonstop for the rest of your life and realise you may not get there. You can do it. You just might not get hired to do it. Yeah. You might not get paid to do it. You might not be seen doing it. So, yeah, there is that. And I, I don't know... Uh, with my kids, the thing for me is I, I've never pointed them towards it and I don't involve them in press because I, until they can figure out whether it's a blessing or a burden mm-hmm. because it can be both It can be a, and, and there are shares of all of it. There are things that are afforded to you and things that are offered to you and do you want to come to this event because people know what your face looks like. And weird, I, isn't it? <laughs> it is a weird thing. That's why I don't like using the word celebrity. I think that belongs to Robert De Niro. Um, Steve McQueen, Hugh Jackman can mm. say that. Um, it's also something I find that you don't have any control over. Like I, I don't know where, how you feel about this, but my I'm a bit of a control freak in a lot of ways. Um, and But the idea of celebrity is so, I mean, it can come, it can go. It's mm. impl- completely dependent on other people's thoughts about mm. you, on whether a magazine or a newspaper thinks you're interesting enough to public. You can't do any work to make that make you a celebrity that's it no. and and it's sort of the fluffiest ickiest part of the whole of job the whole thing well see I, that's why i don't say star or celebrity I, what i have is a and what i am i'm a recognizable head that that actually is what i am what do i do i'm i'm an entertainer and mm. i act but what i am to people is not that it's when they see me and they yell at me on the street it's the recognizable head they're yelling at yeah and it's for, for a lot of the time, it's not even my name. It's Kenny. It's I, I, I could get. I was about to say, I bet it's Kenny. Yeah. So for, yeah. for a lot of it, what you know, what it, how what happens in that moment that we share for a very brief few seconds when I walk past someone at the local town mall, not far from where I live in the country, it's Kenny. <laughs> so that's they've recognised the head. <laughs> yeah, and, um, which is fine. The truth, and you know, the next question that people tend to ask does that bother me, and it doesn't at all. I, you know, being remembered for Kenny's wonderful. Me and my brother worked incredibly hard to make that project and hoped to hell that someone would enjoy it and that a few people might see it. So it's funny, a lot of actors go, oh, you know, that was a long while ago. I've moved on from that. Um, Nah, I'm not moving on from that. That was fantastic. Mm. Better to be remembered for something you've done than forgotten for everything you've tried. (laughs) So true. So the pyro and the lighting and all of that kind of backstage stuff, was that the career path that you sort of thought, okay, this is all the stuff I'm going to be doing that's going to pay the bills and keep me going? Was that your career? Yeah, it was um, my source of income. And I I did well. I I got a lot of – I was – an event manager, a production manager. I worked as assistant site manager to the site manager for U2. And, you know, I worked on big tours and, and I ran a company. I was national general manager of Premier Lighting and Premier Production Services, this, the premier group of companies around Australia. I was national general manager. I'd On a weekend, there'd be 120 people working for the company I was running. So I actually I kind of was good at running business. I kept getting distracted because I'd get involved in these projects and they just get big. Almost, it would feel like it happened pretty quickly, but it probably didn't. So, what do you mean projects were getting big? Like, well, the company kept getting bigger. Right, I, I right, went right. in to sell some lighting products just to have a career, a bit of money while I was acting. And you know, I came back from living overseas. I don't know twenty-seven years. Ago. I was in Sweden for a year and came back. And I came back because I, I couldn't get acting work over there because 
you know, Swedish wasn't my first language. Um, so I had a girlfriend over there, and I, I, but I went, I have to go back to Australia to keep doing what I want to do. So yeah, to pay the bills, I was working at this lighting company, just selling lighting equipment, entertainment stuff, but I'd learnt so much about lighting design because I used to volunteer with the gang show and every show I worked on, when the cast would go home, I would go backstage and stand beside the lighting guys and the sound guys and go, can I help you? And in the end, I learned all of it enough to be a lighting designer and used to do rigging design for major concerts and, you know, Nelson Mandela concert, all these big things, you know. Tennis, so was tennis. everything learned on the job? Did you ever go to uni or TAFE or any of that? Oddly, I never did a single course. I know I used to do power plans for major concerts and I'm not an electrician. I've never studied a minute of it. Um, and then oddly, I was lecturing at university on lighting courses and there's videos still out there on training courses on how to do lighting that are me doing it. Wow. But I just did it all. I don't think Peter Brock did a driving course on how to be a race driver, but he drove a lot of cars around paddocks sideways. Yeah, and I think that, especially that kind of work, it's so practical. You mm. sort of just got to get your hands into it and actually do it. Just do it. To, to, to work and, out. And now there are courses and there are many, but back then there, there wasn't. I just did it all. And so I, things just kept getting bigger. I, I was at the company doing a little bit of work and I don't know, one moment I was the sales guy, then I was the sales manager then I was the national sales manager then I was the Victorian state manager I became the national general manager it just kept things kept growing every time I tried to walk away from things and get back to acting things just kept getting bigger it's often the best way I mean I often find if you take your eye off something and you're looking for something else that's when the opportunities there keep know. you know and you think Rick, could you just give me five minutes I just want to walk away and do something else so what about fill in the gaps for me between when when you saw those early um, scout performances and and sort of leaving school you got straight into acting and then w- were you ever doing any kind of professional kid style acting or were you just uh, amateur plays and scout stuff all the way through school? It was uh, our school didn't have a a drama course of any kind, but Gang Show. I stayed in Gang Show. Uh, ended up being a young production assistant for it, and actually, you know, wrote wrote a couple of perform wrote a couple of songs that music went to, and actually started touring with it. We'd do country tours and little bits interstate. I went overseas and performed in the Philippines. You know, at the age of eighteen. So you know, as small cool. as it was, it was kind of big. So I got a chance to you know sing on albums and do you know. Christmas shows and specials on TV and Cheryl's Neighbourhood. And so I'd appear on little TV shows and, you know, appear in the local paper, local rag, you know, Shane's performing. So it was all small stuff, but it kind of, but it was thrilling. It was exciting and it felt big to me. And I started doing, I kind of got an idea earlier on that I was kind of going okay enough that people were kind of distracted by going, can we steal you to do a, a bit of stuff? So the Scout Association, even back then, used to have me and a mate, we used to do these slapstick comedy ads and I was kind of, there was a few of us that would kind of look to more to do the comedy stuff in the show and um, I got to the point I was out doing these performances for the Scout Association in front of an event where a lot of people were going to put money into things and I was being pulled out of normal situations to go and perform at like the Southern Cross Hotel at like a conference, you know, with me and a mate. And then me and some other friends kind of started doing a bit of slapstick comedy and I was doing it in theatre restaurants. And I was, I think, 16 or 17, um, not old enough to have a licence back then and being driven around by in a mate's car to get to a theatre restaurant to do performances that I was being paid for. So, and it was only $20. Um, but it's something. It, I was getting paid to perform. So, and not being driven by my parents this time, I had a mate driving me there and then eventually I got a car and I could drive myself to it. So... 
they, you know, I just sang in a band in the eighties as well. So then we, you know, we get paid to do that. So I had a rock band, and and so I was performing, but you know, you couldn't call it what you would call professional. But, but there was a sense that maybe this could be something. Yeah, I was always, you know, you keep doing it. And before kids walk out on an arena, be it rugby or AFL, for the sake of a sporting analogy, it doesn't matter what paddock they're kicking a ball around on. As long as they're still kicking the ball, that's training. And that is that is perfecting your art. And acting natural in front of an audience is an incredibly unnatural act. And the only way to make that look more natural is for you to get comfortable with it. Mm doesn't matter whether the audience are comfortable being an audience member. Some people don't like being pointed out. Your job, in order to be appear to be good at it, is to be able to be whatever character you're supposed to be on stage and seemingly don't even notice there's an audience there. Ignoring 20,000 people that are standing right there all staring at you is not a very normal thing to do. So you've got to do it a lot for that to become casual. Because you, you often see, I think the best performers are the ones that immediately put the audience at ease because they seem so comfortable with being up there. As soon as you get somebody on stage that looks like they're super aware of the audience, you're like, mm. I'm uncomfortable now watching you. You make the audience uncomfortable <laughs> with yes, you, yes. for you. And it's That's odd it. because they're being sympathetic. They want yeah. to, oh my God, don't you freak. <laughs> yeah. so and that- as soon as that pressure's on, you're yeah, you're gone. <laughs> you're gone. And that's why when you go and watch any school performance, when it's filled with parents <laughs> who just want their kids to have a good time, yeah. you get applause and laughter for anything. <laughs> if a kid drops a hat, that'll get around. <laughs> oh, it's the hat drop. It's wonderful. And everyone's got their big teeth smile on and take fun, <laughs> and everyone's staring at everyone to their left and right going, oh, aren't they gorgeous? Because one of those kids up there is theirs. Yeah. Oh, well, all you have to do in a school play is be alive. Yeah, if you you don't fall off the front and break a chin or a jaw or a bone in your face by tripping into a prop. (laughs) But it's true. And if they forget a line, parents applaud. Oh, gorgeous. So adorable, right? Stuffing that shit up. So adorable. And that is because of that fear the audience have that. They just don't want anyone on stage to to, to feel uncomfortable. So, yeah, it is that. And and so, as much as all that stuff I was doing wasn't really professional, it, it it was big training and I was performing. I got a chance to walk in and out of a few TV. Studios at the age of 16 to perform. Um, and I walked out on, I was given incredible opportunities to perform in front of sometimes 20, 30, and 40,000 people as a young kid. Where uh, were those gigs at? Oh, my music bowl in Melbourne, um, scouting events like scouting, World wow. Jamborees. Like there'd be like, I forget how many, there was one event, there was like 30, 40,000 people out on this field. But, you know, I went out and performed and sang and did all that. And, you know, when there's a big crowd like that, it doesn't matter what they've paid. Mm. If they've paid nothing or they've paid $1,000 per seat, there's 30,000 people out there. Yeah. No one goes, I'm okay with walking out there in front of 30,000 people. How much have they paid per seat? No, there's 30,000 people. That's the fear factor. Yeah. It's not performing performing in front of people that have paid that makes people nervous. It's just being in front of a crowd. So, yeah, all of it, again, was just, it was great training. And so, yeah, I, I, I spent my life kind of working towards – the dream, and I, and now, I, without a doubt, I have to say I'm living my dream. This is every day that I'm still being paid to perform. It's what I wanted to do. It's all I ever wanted to do. When you left school, did you try and get into drama school, or did you? You said you went away. Was that what you did? You do a gap year, or was that? No, I was. I'm from the western suburbs of Melbourne. I did. I went and did uh, account. So I only went through. I went to a technical school that finished in year eleven. There was nothing more to do after that. Mm-hmm. They. I went and did accounting and law for six months. Oh, wow. Yeah, and then went, oh, 
No. What am I doing? Don't worry. Oh, yeah, I went and did a law degree. <laughs> what? Whoa, whoa, this, is, this is awful. <laughs> what did I do this for? What did I do this for? Yeah. Well, I just did it for six months because I honestly thought I, I probably should be a bit smarter. It was that kind of gathering a few more skills thing. And uh, But I went and worked for the bank and I was an investigator for credit and MasterCard fraud. Went and got jobs to pay bills. But um, the performing thing, so I did, it was just, you know, like I said, doing singing in a band and doing shows and amateur shows and performing and doing voiceovers and all that kind of stuff. I had a gig on radio for a while. but even Yeah, what was that? You were doing characters for Gold FM? Yeah, so, yeah. How did Gold. that come about? It's one of those things too. It's sometimes um, when you leave your scent, (laughs) (laughs) things kind of pick up. It's never you actually always trying to get the gig, but sometimes you're just trying so hard you leave a scent. I, I, a boss's wife, I used to, a lot of people wanted me to do their answering machine messages and it just turned into a thing that people would go, can you do something wacky for my voicemail? That's a good niche market. I I was going to start a business. Yeah. I honestly was. Um, and there's another business me and my brother are going to start that's different but similar called The Last Word. We're going to record messages that can be played from your grave. Oh, that's it's a great It's called The Last idea. Word. doesn't matter what your friends or your family are going to say on your behalf, you get to have The Last Word. That is a great we record idea. It, we hold it until you're, until you're deceased and then we turn up at the event and when everyone's finished, there is a speaker that is literally mounted inside the coffin and out of the coffin you oh. get The Last Word. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, there you go. I've pitched an idea. That's fantastic. If anyone no. does it, it's copyrighted. That's it, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, but it, yeah, we're going to do it. But um, yeah, I was actually, it's funny because there was a while there we were going to start a company of me doing it because it was like it was my job that I wasn't being paid to do. They'd look at me like, you haven't done the lawns. Yeah. And they'd go, it's been six months, you haven't changed my answer machine. And it was funny. <laughs> Sorry, I had shit to do. <laughs> so expectatious is my made up word. And so, yeah, and I had a, the boss's wife I used to do, and a, someone rang the radio station and said, while you're doing funny somethings, you should ring this lady and hear her message. There's a guy that does it. Wow. And so that, yeah, and out of that, they decided to play a prank on her. I did sound effects. I still remember the message. It was because the character ended up having a life on radio, which was Sergio de Gabriel Tichon. Uh, Sergio uh, is a very nice fellow, you know. Um, anyway, he wasn't uh, he wasn't the char- sharpest tool in the shed, but he was a beautician that used to make a lot of mistakes. But people loved him. Ladies loved him. But he was a bit of a goose. Anyway, he as a beautician, he I we pretended that Janet, who was my boss's wife, that I put a mud pack on her face, but I'd used the wrong. Um, powder and in fact it had set like concrete and I was chiseling which was a steel cup at the, how I made the sound effect was hitting a coffee cup with a steel ruler and I made it sound like I was trying to chisel her face out of it <laughs> and saying sorry Janet can't be with you right now and it was me talking she would call you back oh my god and I'm going Ooh! it was supposed to be her screaming through the mask that had set on her face anyway I'm hitting her with a chisel the radio station heard the answer machine, thought it was really funny, and actually decided as a joke to pretend that I'd stolen that sound effect from a BBC sound effect album and that she was about to be sued because they played it on air and they were being sued. So they decided to prank her and then brought me in on it and then said, can you pretend you did do that? So she actually does, she's answerable. All right. Um, and then... After they did that prank, the, when before they hung up, they said, "What other accents can you do?" And I said, "I don't know. What do you What do you want?" And so they were yelling accents, and I would do them and kind of make up a gag with it. And they said, "Do you want a job on radio?" I said, "Yeah, sure." So, have I, accents always been something that have come naturally to you? I think anyone that tells a lot of jokes. My dad told us a lot of jokes. Um, 
and in fact, the dying art of joke telling. I've just I've just finished making a movie that'll be coming out end of this year, which is called That's Not My Dog. That's its title at the moment, which is people telling jokes because it's the dying art form. I think anyone that has been around people that tell jokes, my dad knows a million of them and has told me hundreds of thousands of them. But I'm sure there's ones I haven't even been told yet. And again, I, I am saying that it's, it is a dying art. People aren't doing it anymore. No one comes in with a joke of the week. I have like a joke of the week that I tell friends, you know, and stuff like that. And it's kind of people now tell me I'm the only one that's telling them jokes. And it's like, well, you know, yeah, why? my uncle Dan, the only person in my life that ever tells jokes, tells but jokes. he's got one. Every, and it doesn't matter how many times you see him. I'm like, how can there be new ones? I don't get it. How could he's got a Rolodex of, of jokes? And I think you, I don't know how you could squeeze that much stuff into your head. I what? listen to a joke once and I can't remember. I can't remember. To tell my brother's like that. He, he likes stories, true stories where things go wrong or something amusing. And that's what he, he his mental sponge is built for that. Mm. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. Well, that's actually why my whole theory on being able to remember lines, I go very well at remembering lines. And my whole theory about it is you do hear a joke once for most people. It's not written down. You're not asked to rehearse it or remember it. You're just listening to it and enjoying it. And then two weeks later, someone else says dog, and you go, I heard a great joke about a dog, and you tell the whole joke <laughs> yeah. without even seeing it written down. So that's, I have a theory that if you're actually listening in your mind, if you're into it, if you're listening to a script, you, know, you will remember it because mm. I remember jokes. So it's actually joke telling that I think led me to believing I can just remember the words. It shouldn't be that hard. But I, I do think the accent thing comes from when you tell enough jokes, you want to perfect it. And if you want to make people laugh, then the accents make it work better. So they became... Audio props. You get amazing brownie points from an audience for proper accents. You can do an accent. Oh, it's a killer move. And even if even if you mix up the Irish and the Scottish, you <laughs> yeah. can you're allowed to, yeah. allowed to stuff them up. <laughs> yeah, you can do whatever you yeah. want. But there's something about that. It's a skill, I think, that it never tires no. for people because it's like, oh my goodness, you're sounding different. Sounding different. But see, yeah. you know what? I tell you, my favourite one at the moment, the Irish joke, is this. You know, there's a bit of a setup to it, but we'll fast forward to that. This. Irish grandfather's been invited to the local primary school to tell stories of when he was in the war. He worked at an airfield and they brought him there on St. Patrick's Day and he starts telling this story. Well, children, he said, I fought in the war. It's a terrible thing. People fighting people because of other people. Anyway, hope you're not about to do it. But I did. Anyway, on this day, he said this. I was on the airfield. He said, and this Fokker come swooping down, shooting at me. And the teacher jumps in and says, look, children, just so that you know, a, a, a Fokker. Uh, was an aeroplane that they flew during the war. And he said, that is right. But this fucker was in a mess of smith. <laughs> now, I just heard that during the week. The accent's what makes it funny. Yeah, absolutely. And if you had an Australian going, yeah, but this fucker, oh, you just go, that's just a guy swearing. That's it. But so that, that's why accents, especially in Australia, we're like, well, anywhere in the world, they do the same thing. It's nothing unique to this country. You, As soon as you start doing a German accent, you think it's supposed to be someone quite rigid. Mm. Um, and then your, your Irish is supposed to be a little bit doughy and amusing. You know what I mean? Scottish, they've got a bit of fight in them. Like the accent becomes... And we are, if we're going to tell a dunce... I mean, we do it to ourselves. I've got jokes that, in, you know, it's always bloody Dazza. <laughs> the bloody pub. And out, out of nowhere, Dazza says, bugger that. You know what I mean? And it's you automatically know... This is Sam Black. Yeah. Who keeps it pretty simple. There's a character that comes into the voice immediately without exactly. having to explain anything or do any setup. What about the, um, you did comedy gigs as well, stand up gigs? Did no, you? I did, I did. So I was a warm up guy um, for television shows for about five or six years. How did that job come about? Doing, um, so for, I'll answer your question. Yes, I did a bit of stand up comedy, like I'd get, get up at a few comedy nights here and there. But the truth was, I ended up doing, 
not much of that I leapt into warm-up pretty quickly, which meant you got delivered an audience. It was an audience in a studio and I was working every week and getting paid more than my friends who were doing stand-up. So I just went, I think I might do That'll more of do. this. And um, what happened was I was doing lighting for a show and and now, you know, the incredible Raymond J. Bartholomew, mm. um, Brian Ancurvis couldn't turn up. He was sick and I, and I offered to fill in. But I was the lighting guy there. I was running the crew for a Channel 7 show, a um, thing called Live and Kicking. And Oh, I remember that show. Yeah. And I, I was the one helping get that show bumped into a theatre. The, the rigging points went in and the truss wasn't up yet, so I actually got a crew in and kind of got it across the line to help uh, a mate of mine, Rob Coyer, who was the head of lighting at Channel 7 at the time. And uh, Brian was sick or something and I, I had an opportunity to... Harvey Silver, who he you know, was the boss of the show and now I'm in business with Harvey, we, we produce stuff together. And um, yet at the time I just said, well, if you need someone to get up there and do the warm-up, I'll do it. And so you've kind of Stephen Bradbury in, in a way. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, someone else fell over. Yeah. And it literally was... I just said I, I can do it and Steve Dundon was the guy I was talking at the time. I also produced stuff with Dundo. He's a, another television guy. Now we've been mates forever and he um, he said, "You want to?" I remember him saying, you want to have a go, do you? And I was kind of like, oh, you want to have a crack at it? And I remember saying, oh, I won't have a crack. I'll do it. If you want, I'll do it for you. It's not that I just want to have a crack, but if you want, if you've got no one here, I'll do it. And... Um, it turned out, I found out later, he then went off and asked one of my crew, he said, Shane's saying he could do the warm-up and the one guy he asked was the right guy to ask. He'd been at events years ago and he said, yeah, he used to, which was true, he said he used to stand on a mic for four hours and do ad-lib at off-road car events out with 2,500 drunk punters out in the bush. Trust me, he'll do it. <laughs> he can do it. And he went, all right, and then... Fast forward to a few hours later, I was on stage with a mic in my hand doing warm-up for a TV show for the first time, never done it, and I did it from that day forward. I, I became a warm-up guy, and there was about uh, Michael Pope. Um, there was a, a few of us. There was only about four or five in Melbourne at that point doing it, probably probably three or four main guys, and I was one of them. And So, yeah, so I, I became a warm-up guy and did that for for years. So I did I did less comedy. I was running the company, Premier, back then and, and still performing in bands and doing all that kind of stuff and radio. I'd, I'd get up at four in the morning, head into Gold FM on Fridays and do Sergio or character voices, but I had a segment called the 60-minute challenge. Then I'd drive back and keep running Premier and then at nights I'd disappear into the studios and do warm-up. So, you know, I was working. Were you auditioning for acting jobs at the same time? Or? Yeah, I did a bit. Um, and didn't get a lot. You know, even when I was a kid, I auditioned for Henderson Kids, didn't get it. Young Talent Time, I was kind of, a few friends were um, picked to go and they ended up in Young Talent Time, you know. Tim Nelson and Paul Brown, there's some people and I, I was being told they've got their eyes on you and I had friends kind of in, that were saying, you know, that they're looking at you quite seriously and I kept thinking, oh God, I, th- I hope I get it. And I really, I would have given anything to have been in Young Talent Time. So your first step into media then professionally or acting professionally, obviously you had that Gold FM job, but what was was there anything between that and Kenny? Because Kenny was obviously the thing that made everybody yeah, go, look at this Canada. bloke. But was there anything prior to Kenny that... So leading up to, look, nothing major. Um, Kenny was without a doubt the moment that doors that used to slam in my face were then held open. And um, before that... You know, I did some MC work. I did character immersion stuff. I'd pretend to be corporate characters at events and I was getting paid to do corporate MC work. 
you know, I sang in a barbershop quartet, like I said, <laughs> I had all these little gigs that I was doing, the radio. So I was getting paid to do bits and pieces, but there was nothing that was going to launch me like Kenny did. And my brother uh, is a director, still is. We've just finished doing another movie together. Um, so Clayton's an incredible director, and Kenny, I used to use Splashdown at events. I was a production manager. We used to use Splashdown. And if, and if not for my brother, it would never have happened. He was the one that said, what a great way of looking at the world through the eyes of the working class of, of, of the plumbers. And, and you can imagine, I, I met the guys, and, you know, when they go to an event and people go, you know, what do you do for a job around the table at a wedding? Oh, yeah, I'm a carpenter, I'm a this, and they go, I'm work for Splashdown. What do they do? You know, we do the toilets for events. Oh, better not shake your hand and you'll take shit from anyone and bang, comedy <laughs> gold like that. Yeah. So they, they actually have a sense of humour about them and it was my brother that said what a great way to look at the world through the eyes of the Splashdown plumbers. So we, yeah, we and, and my brother the same as me but very different but very similar that, you know, he's he's a director um, but he's a writer and he's a he's a cameraman and he's an editor and he can do, or he can really do all of it. He's special effects, makeup, you name it, he can do it. Because half the battle often is finding the right people around you or the right team. You might have a great idea, but you might not have somebody to bounce off and write it with. You might have nobody behind, to get behind the camera and you might not know anyone. You might want to create the project for free and you, can, and you can't afford to pay somebody X number of dollars yeah. to, to actually have that person who you are close to and you trust that you go, we could sit down and make this we together. This. That's a huge thing. Well, the crew and Kenny... <clears throat> the short film version, which was 47 minutes long, was him and me. So we had Sean Lander who helped with the editing on it, but my brother did a lot of the editing. When we did the feature film, when we had to extend it into a feature, they all came on. Uh, Nicole Barty was a, a young girl who wanted to get in the industry, who now is full-time in the industry. She was an assistant, but on some days it was me and my brother. So I would turn up in the wardrobe, I would drive the truck, I would pick up the toilet on the back of it, my brother would pack the audio gear and the camera into his car, we would turn up at a location, it would just be him and me. I'd put my mic on, he'd check the mic volume. We'd, if I had to do a bit of pancake, we'd put a bit of pancake to stop me sweating or red, or we'd just go without it. Mm. And we were the crew. I did the lighting for it. The final scene is lit by a mag light sitting on my jumper on the bonnet of a car <laughs> pointing at my face. <laughs> so like we, I was the lighting guy and my brother, my brother can light as well. Great at lighting film in particular. Yeah. Um, and so we did everything. Everything. Was, was there a strategy behind that film? Because th I think one of the uh, interesting things about this business is that often being able to make your own project, if that project is successful, can be a great way to be recognised in a way that you might have been auditioning seven days a week and nobody would give you the time of day and then all of a sudden if you can come to the table with something that you've created yourself if you've created a role for yourself and you've built it and you've made it and mm. you hand it over and put it in front of people it can give you a legitimacy that you didn't have even though you were exactly the same person yesterday yes was there a sense when you did that piece together that you thought this could be something that gets that, us yeah, in the door well, there's no way we could have ever imagined it would get as big as it did um when it came out it was it, sta it stayed on screens for over half a year for 26 weeks it stayed in cinemas it was still being played in cinemas when the dvd came out wow that doesn't happen it was the high, highest grossing australian film in three years it outsold the dvd outsold superman three to one um we were the highest grossing highest selling australian dvd since the inception of dvd <laughs> they sold out Australia-wide in four days. They couldn't print them quick enough. 
<clears throat> it was uh, we would never know that, but it was a for us that was a long road to get there. Yeah, but we never knew. We could never have dreamt. I mean, no, you could dream mm. and only dream it would go that well, but you couldn't expect it to. That'd be insane. not that big. And no, but what and didn't we, you have any expect? I mean, you would never assume that it would be that successful. But I mean, just did you even assume? Oh, this might open a door, a crack. So the, the way it happened, it was kind of. It's like when you look at a wedge, you know, a door wedge. It's so narrow at the start. It just starts as this little bit of a splinter and it just gets fatter at the back end. And honestly, the journey was kind of like that. That we, Clay wanted to do, he wanted to do stuff with me. He thought that was a great idea for a short film. It was just supposed to be a short film. But my brother's very good at what he does. And it's a bit like, you know, if you hand a mason a hammer and a chisel and mm. come back, they're probably going to give you Mount Rushmore if, they, if you leave them alone long <laughs> yeah. enough. You know what I mean? Yeah. You go, I left you with a hammer and a chisel. <laughs> I, they go, I know, but look at that rock. <laughs> it's just what they do. So he was going to make a short film, but he just ignored, you know, I've been said if Clayton made shorts, they'd come back as jeans. Um, <laughs> yeah. So he it was supposed to be a short film, but the story kept getting bigger. And it was a 47-minute long short movie. And that was for us to do a short film that could never go on TV realistically or have a theatrical release. It's a short film that only exists at film festivals. And film festivals aren't now bigger than they've ever been, but, you know, this was and it, well, kind of big enough then. But this was for the St Kilda Film Festival and um, Paul Harris ran the St Kilda Film Festival, rang my brother, have you got anything? He said, I'm working on this thing called Kenny and Clay. We kind of hurried a bit as... If you can say that, we still have a lot of work to do. But Clay was pushing it to get it ready for, for St Kilda Film Festival. Clayton wasn't even in Australia when it played. He was in Japan shooting a commercial. And um, at the time, I think this is telling, we hoped people would like it. We thought, we thought it was funny. But it was our sense of humour, which makes us laugh and a lot of our friends laugh. But it's, God, you, you just don't know. Well, you never know. everyone's cup of tea. I mean, you know. Seinfeld still goes into clubs in America and tries his gear out before he tours it. Mm. Like he's not sure which bits are actually going to work. Paul Hogan, who's a mate of mine, you know, after he was famous, went on tour to find out if he was funny. He was already famous for being funny. He wanted to go on tour to find out if he was funny. So some of the greats that I admire, you know, there's a commonality there. You still don't know it's all going to work. But we wanted, we thought it was funny. Um, we loved the character. Um, we hope he could. We really did hope he would connect with a few, quite a few people, and it was a short film. That's what it was. That's the start of that wooden wedge I'm describing to you. And it went in there, and they. I was in the cinema with like three mates, and then Glenn Pruska, who owned Splashdown, still owns it. He became the sole investor of the feature film, and we played it, and they loved it. The audience laughed like they were laughing out loud. And when it finished, they came up afterwards in the foyer recognised my head, told me, oh, my God, I love that character. I'm like, wow, that went well. Yeah. That's going to be it. Yeah. Like, there was like 300 people fitted in that cinema, probably 250. And I remember ringing my brother and he said, in Japan, how did it go? And I went, they loved it. And he went, did they? <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, right. I don't know if that answers the question. Yeah, right. I'm okay. like, oh, my God, they really liked that. And then we did a special screening uh, for all the people that splashed down and, and people we showed it. We, we got People's Choice at the St Kilda Film Festival and the Channel 10 Comedy Award, which they gave us, I think it was $3,000. $3,000 we won. And my brother and me said, we, we shouldn't keep that money. We've got to thank all the people that were in it and the Splashdown workers. And So we organised a special screening because they all couldn't get to the St Kilda Film Festival. So we hired a projector 
uh, and hired the Sun Theatre in Yarraville in Melbourne and we put a special screening on for the Splashdown workers and their families and people we wanted to thank. And whatever money was left, we put at a bar across the road for them to drink that until there was none of that $3,000 left. And that was going to happen pretty quick. And so we showed the film and we had a VIP section down the front. You had to be, if you were a Splashdown worker or a janitor or a wife or a child of the workers that normally get laughed at, um, they were the VIPs. And, and some of the, you know, I remember some of the wives like almost teary talking to us with a tear in their eyes. Thank you so much for celebrating, you know, our husbands and it it just couldn't have been like even that was better than anything we'd ever dreamt of and it was more like the kids loved it and so already it was like oh my god this is this is better than we could have could have dreamt we didn't even dream of this and while we're having like it still still you know excites me and touches me that that when i think of that aspect of it because that was greater than a performance that was affecting families going you celebrated my dad and that was gorgeous so then uh, at the end, towards the end of that night, Glenn Pruska, who owns, still owns Splashdown, said, I've got some friends that are in the audience that have a bit of money, uh, are attached to a family that have a bit of money, and they'd be interested in giving you a million dollars to turn that into a feature. So we never were going to make a feature film. The thing was supposed to stop that night and maybe turn up at a few more festivals. And then they... So we were being approached, and my brother didn't want to take a million dollars. He said they'll lose it. If we try and turn this into a feature film they won't get their money back. Australian films don't make their money back. And so, and he said, there's no more of a story to tell. We've been filming for like a year. We had to wait for the Melbourne Cup to come on. We had mm. to wait for events because we can't afford to hold the Melbourne Cup, so we reckon we might get them to set it up first. <laughs> so we did that at all sorts of events that Splashdown worked at to get the film to a story. Um, so we went over to Glenn's place that week to have this discussion and Clay was going in, my brother was going in to tell Glenn, so give us a million dollars, there's not a feature film, they'll lose their money. And if these are friends of yours, we're not going to throw their money in the bin, which is effectively what we'd be doing. And why we were having this chat about not turning it into a feature film. Glenn Pruska's wife came over and interrupted the meeting and said, sorry to interrupt you guys. Uh, and she said, Glenn, I, we just need to know, I'll never forget the guy's name, Ron from American is on the phone, which is an American toilet company. Bang, comedy gold. <laughs> said, uh, just needs to know if we are or aren't going to exhibit at the Pumper and Cleaner Expo in Nashville. And he said, yeah, let's bite the bullet, let's do it. And my brother said, what's, what's that? <laughs> and they said, it's the Pumper and Cleaner Expo in Nashville. He said, he's looking at me going, what is that? And they said, it's the World Toilet Expo. <laughs> Man, it's, it's Poo HQ. <laughs> and seriously started describing how massive this thing is. And my brother said, that, that is what this film needs. You, we go to that. We've got a movie. And he said, well, how much do you want to do it for? And how much can you make it for? And that's when Clay said, we would need to do it. To get the money back, we'll need to do it for half of that. He's like, how are you going to do a feature film for half of that? And that's when Clay looked at me and said, because we'll do everything. Wow. We'll do all of it. And that night we formed a film company and we went out literally that day. He said, what are we going to call the company? I said, Thunderbox Films, like Thunderbox's <laughs> toilet. He went, done, that's the name. Glenn gave us startup money to... Next day, we'd go to the bank and start up a film company. And from the next day, we were turning a short film that we thought was done, you know, into a feature film. And Glenn said, well, if you only want that much, I'll give you that. We had no idea we had the money. Wow. He was the guy that was running the toilet company. And at that point, he'd become a mate. And he said, I'll give you the money. At that point, he became the sole investor and we formed a company and between the three of us that night and went on to make the film and... So again, we go back to the start of your question, in which people say, you know, did you ever think it was going to be that? No, no yeah, way, no, idea. no. 
I guess it's, I mean, for, there's, there is some strategy behind certain things and, and other things is just you putting one foot in front of the other and mm. making the next logical step in the, in the path. So sometimes I think people do have a bit of strategy and think, oh, maybe this will be the way I've certainly worked. You know, there are lots of things that we all do in our lives all the time mm. to think, oh gosh, will this be something that might, but it's, it's really nice, I think, to have those moments where you think this is going to be tiny. And then there's an authenticity behind projects mm. like that that I think people really buy into. And I think that's even more important in Australia. Yes. Because I think we can sniff a lack of that authenticity a mile oh. off. And a lot of people have really done their career a huge disservice by going the other way. But I think we are so ready to reward genuine effort of somebody who didn't think they would get somewhere. Yeah. Well, we do love the underdog. Yeah. And we, and we love it because... You know, I think everything about Australia started with such humble beginnings mm. and we do, that's what we celebrate and that's what we like. like. We're not supposed to, I don't, you know, I don't think too many Australians like watching anyone stand at the top of a hill and beat their chest. No. Go, look at me. But if you climb to the top of a hill and turn around, I think, you know, when you watch Australians do love that, when they all watch someone struggling their way up a hill and they're all at the bottom of the hill and when that person gets to the top and turns around and there's a crowd there that applaud yeah. them. They're great moments. Yeah. Great, great to witness, great to be a part of. Well, if you are that person at the top of the hill too, I think you feel, I mean, not that it, I mean, some people really love the applause and that's it, but it's there's a sense of, oh, I earned some of this. Like I, yeah. I it's okay that I'm standing here because I think there's a lot about this business that can be luck, timing, mm. somebody being plucked from obscurity, all sorts of things that I, I think – it's hard because you can grapple sometimes with being somewhere and going, oh, gosh, I haven't really strived for this. And there's something about success that comes from striving for years and yeah, years yeah. that makes it much more comfortable to possess. Yes. You know? Yeah, and also when you get to the top of that hill and you turn around and they applaud, you should run straight back down that hill. Yeah. And push the next next pile of shit up. <laughs> and you've got to get down there and also get amongst them and thank 100%. them for being behind you because had you have not kept going up that hill, they were probably going to come and push you to the top. Yeah. Help you, I think. And that's... That helps. But the, the truth is um, that one thing I have always believed in is that luck prefers a prepared mind. Um, you know, there's all that luck is when skill meets opportunity. And it, and it is true that if you have a dream of being an AFL footballer or an NRL player, you'd better be playing with that ball in the paddock because the day that the amazing dream comes true that some random experience has the selector in your back garden who just who walks in the wrong back gate going, is Trev here? Sorry, wrong house. Oh, yeah, having a kick out, son. Let me have a look mm. at you. When you kick that ball, you better be able to kick it bang straight through the centre of those goals. You miss it once, he's going to walk out that gate and he's not coming back in that gate, mm. most likely. So you have, to be, you have to be training to kick that ball. And with we never expected to make Kenny to be the success, but my brother is a damn fine director and, and he's a creative genius. That was no fluke. And we had a character that we both connected with and we injected it with the heart of our uncles and they're the people we adored and the funniest people on the planet were those people. So we gave Australia a bit of what Australia was missing, which is just the true Australian character. And we'd been missing him a bit and we're still missing him now. And I'm not going on some tirade about... 
what Australia is. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> I mean, the, the only thing that's constant is change. But my uncles, and when you go into regional areas, when you sit at a bar with these these people that aren't even trying to be funny, which we find hilarious. My dad is his funniest when he's angry. He says yeah. the funniest things. <laughs> you know, when he's yelling at cars. Like, he, he's, <laughs> he you know, some of the best comedy I've ever heard is dad yelling out of his car at people who cut in front of him. This bloke couldn't drive a hot nail into a butter container. <laughs> he had expressions for everything. You know, not and not just where'd you get your licence in a wheat bix bag. Yeah. He'd be yelling out, mate, to the tradesman, why don't you move over and let the drug drive? <laughs> Give it a chance to do better than you are because you're shit. Like, he'd say like, it was funny and we thought that was what we – so we, you know, I, I'd acted at that point and done a, a lot of it enough to be able to kind of do a character and be convincing in front of a camera. Clayton certainly knew what he was doing with all the gear and we had a rough idea what to do with comedy and we put all that together. It's our family are all playing characters in it, you know, friends and family. And my brother's very good at getting a natural performance out of even non-actors. Mm. Um, so that part, none of that was a fluke, but the where it got to was the sum of its parts. But we never we never expected for it to get into a Grand Prix. We just wanted to have people applaud at a billy cart race. Yeah, <laughs> I guess you're right about that idea of being prepared because it's the same thing about being able to put your hand up at the, you know, when the warm-up guy doesn't turn up. Uh, it's the same thing of, of your film goes bunter and all of a sudden I, I'm assuming the phone starts ringing much more than it would before mm. and you've actually got the skills and the experience and the time to go, yes, I can say yes to that and no, I won't balls it up. Yeah, you know, I can turn up and do that. Well, and we're I'm, to, we're yeah. to promote it. The film wasn't a smash hit when it came out. We, oh, really? Well, it, it was loved by people but it didn't mean everyone heard about it because to advertise a film costs to, to – what they call P&A, prints and advertising, because back then the print, it had to be printed onto film. Oh, of course. It's very expensive. The first the first print will cost you about a quarter of a million dollars to get wow. one. And then you can get a reprint, like when you used to get doubles, when you used to get your films exposed at oh, the pharmacy. Yeah, the If chemist. you want doubles, it's only another 20 cents. <laughs> first one's going to cost you like two bucks, but yep. for an extra 20 cents, I'll print you another one because oh, I've right. printed the negative. Mm. Well, that's what it's like. The, the first print was like a quarter of a million dollars, but you can have everyone after that. We'll do for like three grand. Mm. Well, Put that out on 180 screens around Australia. Do the numbers on that, let alone make the film, and then publicise it and do ads and billboards. So we we didn't have the budget to do that. So, you know, even, even before the film came out, we'd finished making the film. To make money, I was so distracted from the, the company I was running, I had to leave that. I was working for Splashdown. This is where people got confused. I helped restructure the company and run some events. Not dressed as Kenny. I was shamed, but no one had seen the film yet. Yeah, right. I was helping do that while we're getting the post-production done and we were doing i was building helping build there was a guy who was a much better welder than me that's why i didn't do the welding but we were <laughs> building signs and we got banners made that got hauled on the back of shipping containers we're getting towed behind trucks and i'll be honest every now and then a truck would possibly break down over the top of freeways at what they call peak hour with, wow. a, with a billboard on the back of a truck that'll be over the top. I mean, I shouldn't be telling these things. No, I mean, the statute of li limitations, limitations, I'm sure. And so I want to see this statue. <laughs> statue, isn't it? I just thought there's some guy up there with his hand up and a yeah. blue book. That's the statute of limitations. <laughs> but um, we... Is that what got... Because I, all I can remember now of that time was it being everywhere. But, of course, when you're actually in the weeds of it, everybody goes, oh, my goodness, you were here in five seconds. And you go, there. well, it was a slog and a half to it get... Was. So, so I, was that I literally... I for seven months in character. 
And I was never going to do it in character, but my brother said, you've been Shane Jacobson for 36 years and no one really gives a shit. <laughs> You're Kenny for an hour and a half on screen and they love you. <laughs> you tell me who we're wheeling out. <laughs> and I did. I fought him on it going, I don't think we're supposed to. He said, no, no, I'm telling you. It's the char- they Give him the character. Give him Humphrey. Because he is like Humphrey B.B. And we proved it. The funny, it was, again, my brother said, even when we toured, we did a thing called Kenny's World. And we toured Kenny around the world for this TV show. And in India, in really impoverished areas, like when Kenny turned up and with his big face and, you know, he sees the good in everyone, kids would, had, had no idea. He's not recognisable to them. But kids would hang off him. It was funny because he was like Humphrey Bear. And we kind of thought in those terms. He, he looked at everyone and, like, it didn't matter what anyone did, Kenny always said, yeah, bloody, yeah, it's good on him. It's great, you know. <laughs> and he did, didn't matter what anyone said, he thought that was great. And he's, he's turned out all right, isn't he? Like, it didn't matter what someone did, he yeah. always had a little compliment in there. He did. He just sees the best. Mm. The only person who he hates, who he thinks is a tosser, is Shane Jacobson. <laughs> so we have Kenny. He thinks Shane Jacobson's a tosser. We find that very amusing that he thinks I'm a wanker. <laughs> he reckons I've taken all his glory and run around saying <laughs> I was in the film. And So the only person Kenny Smythe doesn't like is that, that toss bag, Shane Jacobson. I love that. Um, and so, yeah, the... The, we were touring for seven months. When it started, I went from... So if I go from the start, what it was like me promoting the film at the start to what it was like at the end, picture me dressed as Kenny at the Brisbane Mall standing at the back of a Nova panel van with brochures in my hand while kids push past me to get the free packet of chips and the soft drink as I hand them a flyer and one in ten might look at the flyer and go... Hey, mate, how come you're on this poster? Oh, wow. And I'd have to go in character. Oh, I don't know. They just had a film crew sort of follow me around and they've turned it into a bloody movie or something, you know. Because Kenny can't promote a film. He's a plumber, not a not an actor. Yeah, right. So I would be unable to sell the film because I'm Kenny. That's not what he does. So I would be in character. So I'd be standing in the middle of malls and then I did that and built that up to doing radio shows where they've been getting told by the publicist, who's now my full-time manager. Um, we've been together for 11 years now working together that with you know her saying he's, he's Kenny, he's the plumber, it's a new film that's come out, but he'll be coming in character. Right, so it's Shane Jacobson. No, no, you'll be meeting Kenny. And we had the same deal that we learned off Barry Humphreys. He's the master. Why would you rewrite the book? When he puts Dame Edna's wig on, he's Dame Edna. Yeah. You don't get to meet Shane Jacobson. If Kenny's turning up, you meet Kenny. And as soon as my hat went on, I was Kenny. We just went, let's, that's the rule. No one gets to meet Shane. So, and we had to really stick with that solidly because they can't go. So, Shane, playing this character, so we had to stick to them meeting Kenny. They can ask Kenny anything they want. But any time, and my then publicist, now full-time manager, was great at letting them know, don't ask him questions as Shane because it won't make sense. And, and Kenny will be very confused. Right. So, and if they did, every now and then they'd say, but you're just a character, right? I would have to look at her through the glass and go, are oh, no, I real? Oh. What, are you, what are you talking about? I'd get very confused and she'd be going, Kenny, of course you're real. Oh, that was, that was terrifying. The pants off me. I think he's trying to make out I'm not even a person. <laughs> like Kenny would look like, what are you saying? So they'd realise this isn't going to work. Yeah. So it took a, a, some people a while to figure out how this was working and a lot of stations were like, no, we don't want this. This is making sense. We don't really know who this actor mm. is. But the film was playing in Qantas aeroplanes at the same time it was getting released in main cabins. And people were getting in these steel tubes, being forced to watch this film that made 
a lot of people laugh. I still have so many people stop me and tell me their aeroplane stories of watching this halfway through, bursting into laughter in business class. God, I hosties told me this for years that when they loved it when Kenny was showing on the plane because drink orders would go down because people would hear laughter and go, what is that person laughing at? And everyone would slowly put their headphones on and watch half the film and go, what was that? Love what they saw and they'd all land and tell people, you've got to go and see this film and they'd have to go and watch it because they only saw half. How do you get onto a Qantas plane? Is that just a process of... It's a process of getting a getting film that on. works for the people. It's different now because that... There was a lot of main cabin films, but now you've got your own screen, you can choose. Oh, so you don't have the choice. You've got, oh, up on the main screen. Whether you want to watch it or not. And then some people were choosing to watch it on their individual screens in business, but were laughing so much. People were like, I give up. What are you watching? So it, it it was a long build, but we went out on, I think, I don't know, 60 or 70 screens around Australia. But I toured Australia and New Zealand and in the end, England, nonstop. I mean, every week I was doing, I did hundreds and hundreds of appearances as Kenny in cinemas and hundreds of interviews on radio stations. I'd do 14 a day. So people would be going to me, I heard you on radio the other day, what was that? And i go, I don't know. I'm doing pre-records I would, and I'd do paper interviews and I did it for seven months. And so in the end, I'm being interviewed, me and my brother and my family, on 60 Minutes for this smash hit Kenny, which was seven months later. But me and my brother would look at each other going, you know, I was at the back of a panel van in the Berkshire, like in the Brisbane Mall with kids pushing me out of the way to get chips. And it was like seven months later. So it was, there wasn't a tipping point. It just slowly built. And then people would start to recognise me. And, you know, and I was doing some nights three or four cinemas a night. A guy in Adelaide, you know, lost his licence trying to get me from one cinema to another because I'd turn up at the end and they'd go, ladies and gentlemen, Kenny. And me and my publicist would walk out and I'd do 15 minutes of stand-up of there was no questions the audience didn't you know they didn't went out of the script they could ask Kenny anything they want and in the end I had to have a book in my pocket to write down the answers that I gave to their questions which is why we have Kenny's entire backstory because if they asked me a question we didn't have an answer to yet I would create that part of his life and I have to come out and go to my brother so he went to school here he did this like anything we hadn't done because Kenny couldn't say I don't know because he's supposed to be real so wow. we built his whole life. You know, did you have any girlfriends growing up? Oh, there's a couple. Yeah, there's a couple of very special ones. And Kenny would just start talking because to keep it real, you, you don't go, oh, I don't know. Yeah, of course. He goes, did I what? Oh, God. Sarah Johnson. I'll never forget <laughs> her. I would have only been 13, 14 at the time. We just, I just, Kenny just start telling stories. And so I'd have to write them down going, he did this. And someone said, why don't you wear the... This is Blue a great over. lesson in the chip, 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 chip away oh, yeah, yeah. that it takes to get to that, the point where it's everywhere. Where we want to be, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so after, the, after it did get to that tipping point and was that just, did things change pretty quickly for you in terms of? Yeah, we went to America. Well, then America wanted to, you know, the film had an English release and won Mike Moore's Film Festival in America and, you know, hearing John Cleese had said something on radio and referenced it and then Brian Brown ringing my brother to say, I was so angry to find out that you bastards made a mockumentary. It wasn't real. I liked Australia better thinking Kenny was out there. Um, you know, and getting little things like that, each name that comes up and then Brian Brown taking me out of his wing and taking me to red carpets and introducing me to people as Shane Jacobson, the next, he's, the, he's the next big thing and, you know, going, that's Brian Brown. And then... You know, going on to do shows with Jeffrey Rush and 
you know, Paul Hogan becoming a mate, meeting Paul Hogan in America because he wanted to meet us, me and my brother, and then said to my manager, now manager, she'd done work with him before as a publicist, and he said, they're not these, they're not wanky people, are they? <laughs> and she said, no, they're very normally said, all right, well, I'd like to meet him. And then, you know, getting a phone call from a director saying, um, I've got a question for you. Would you like to be in a film with Paul Hogan? I mean, Jesus Christ. <laughs> and I said, I assume I'm the second call. <laughs> I, I assume you have to probably ring him and go, do you want to do it with that part Shane Jacobson? Like, I'm sure, I'm sure they don't ring Paul and go, right, well, Shane Jacobson wants to work And you've with got you. no choice, yeah. Yeah. So uh, I said, I assume I'm the second call. And he said, you are. And I said, did he say yes to me in a film with me? And he said, yeah. I mean, I was just... This is one of those interesting parts of the business where you go from having people you've seen or heard or known and then working with those people and then mm. all of a sudden becoming friends with those people. And the, the path of that is not like you go from sitting in front of the TV looking at Paul Hogan and the next thing you know you're having he dinner with him. Yeah. That's it. It's a really slow path until eventually you can call him up and you don't think twice about it. But there's got to be those moments where you just think... Goodness gracious. How, how am I here? <laughs> yeah. Why am I here? It is always, I, I say it, I think I gave Paul his Lifetime Achievement Award at the Film Awards um, and they had to ring me and a mate to say, we want to offer him the award, can you talk to him? Um, because Paul doesn't receive, he doesn't like getting awards. Mm. Finds it embarrassing and he's just, he's that guy, he, he, it just doesn't work for him. I, I had to ring him kind of say, so I think it's time you let people applaud you, mate. You know, I, I like to beg him. And I'm like, no, I remember hanging up the phone thinking, I'm, I am now, I've got to the point where I'm ringing him to tell him he should come and accept an award. And, but I said it when I was on stage, I am, I'm forever his student, but always his fan. Like I can't, he's a mate, he's a mate, but I cannot rid of the bit of me that is his fan. And I, and I shouldn't. Mm. Um, and so again, you know, and there's so many people I've worked with now that you go, I'm still going to be, I'm going to be your fan with or without your permission. 40% of me stays your fan. But when we're sitting in a room alone, having a glass of beer together, you know, I'll be your mate. Yeah. But when they go, your mates, I go, yeah, but he's still Paul Hogan. So, <laughs> yeah. You know. Are you now at the stage where you can pick and choose what you'd like to do? No, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. Or is there I, still an element of I've uh, still got – because I think sometimes the assumption is, oh, well, you get to a certain point, everybody knows you must just be flooded with scripts, the work part of it lessens mm. a little bit. But is it still – you're still chipping away to make all of this happen all the time? There's part of me that always tries to um, batten down the hatches and, and, you know, have stuff in reserve and all that kind of stuff. And I, my manager and my partner have said – and some mates have said, I, I think you can probably stop doing that now. Um, I'm, I'm really fortunate. I do get offered and shown a lot of scripts um, and I do. I am in a position where I can say no if, if the script isn't kind of what I'm looking for um, and feel fairly confident there's more scripts waiting. I've got, I've got four movies to come out yet that I've finished. You know, there's, if someone says, you've got any other movies you're going to do, I'm, I'm in a very fortunate position that I've still got four that people haven't even seen yet mm. and a TV show um, still to come out just in the next, you know, 12 months. Mm. And I'm attached to, I don't know, 14 other movie scripts and I've got about another six on approach at the moment. So I am very fortunate with that. But having said that, you know, I haven't got Hollywood knocking my door down. Um, and some of the films 
um, will take a long while. Like, you know, people, when a script, um, a script turns up in front of me, even if I love it, it'll be seven years until it probably gets made. So it's a funny industry because even though the work at the moment, I can show you a stack of scripts that I've read and said, oh, yeah, I love it. Um, I did a film called Oddball, which is a kids' film that, that came out about a year or so ago, a year and a half ago. I, you know, I read that script eight years ago. So um, they do. That's amazing. I think that's take, part, yeah, because obviously the acting, is, I, I didn't realise that that was how long mm. things happen in that world. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it's not exactly like you can take the phone call and go, great, well, that's uh, October taken care of. <laughs> yeah, and, I've, you know, and then sometimes when they do, the people have been trying to get them up. And I've, I've been attached to some scripts that I've said yes to for four years ago, and they're nowhere. They're, they're still floating on the horizon. And you just don't know when they're – honestly, you look out. It's like in Newcastle when you look out on the horizon, there's just all those ships. Mm. And you go, when do they come in? Yeah. <laughs> like, like, you just look at this, like, one boat pulled so up to the dock. So is that how they all work? They're all floating out there. And you go, what do they all do? And everyone goes, they're waiting. And you go, how long do they wait out there? And they go, sometimes for, like, months until the right coal price. And you go, is that really how this works? And the film's a bit like that. It waits for the funding and yeah, – the So they'll, sc- they'll cast it before they'll get – well, funding. sometimes they ring up and go, are you interested in the script? And they go, because if you say you like the script, they want you to attach your name to it. Gotcha. But that is, that's just attaching your name to it. That means you like the script. And then they can get that script and then go, we've got Shane Jacobson interested in this script. He's attached to it. And even then it doesn't mean you're actually going to do it because there's no money. You don't know, you don't know where it's going to film, when it's going to film, if you're available... But if I'm old mate nobody and I'm going into an audition, what I'm auditioning for is probably has the money and everything. So in Correct. some ways it's kind and when, of... And when that happens, it's fast. It's fast. Because they go, and in America, when you're over there, you get auditions. You know, I've auditioned for films with Jack Nicholson and everything else. You get, a, like, they, my agent rings me and goes, tomorrow, you know, you're going in for an audition. And literally, like, for massive Hollywood, like, you know, I've done them for... You know, aliens and you know, there's a lot of films I don't get. There's a lot of films I don't get. Mm. There's a lot I get. There's a lot of... When, when someone goes, you're in a lot of films, I go, yeah, but I'm not in a lot of films. <laughs> <laughs> and you, you get, oh, man, all my friends in America, they work so... You know, Daniel McPherson's doing well over there now, but, man, I have to work so hard. That's, that's the grind, you know. I remember someone saying to, to Paul Hogan again, his name's come up again, that, you know, what do you need to succeed in entertainment? He said a thick hide. Yeah. And, and he meant that he meant every word of that. It's like, yeah, come on, you got any better advice? He said, no, you need a thick hide. Because mm. once, if you don't have that, you're going you're gonna to struggle. Going for a job and not getting it is, is really deflating. But I'm in a job where you have to constantly ask for a job and you get told no. I think it's important that you have a realistic understanding of your skill set too. I think there's a lot of people out there that think oh, I'm going to do this and you it's it's important to look at yourself critically and go where could I improve? What do I suck at? Mm. What do I really want to do but I'm just not any good at? Good at it, yeah. yeah. Because you just Me set your high jump, I still think I'd be great. <laughs> I reckon I'd be great. <laughs> You would nail it. Would I? Nail it. Do you, is there they, anything? They'd know where I came down. <laughs> there, would, there wouldn't be a little mark where there's an official. Same as We're going to need hop, another crash, mat. Yeah, the hop, skip and jump. I oh, know we can see where he landed. Don't worry about that. <laughs> what, do you think that there's anything that you would have done differently if you had your time again? No, it's a it's a question. I'm moving away from the mic and I'm, I'm making a job even harder. You gave me a few simple rules and I, at the start I was trying to pretend I'm technically minded. No, I failed. It's all a lie. Actors, God, they lie. 
It, I <laughs> someone said if you could, you know, rewind the clock, you know, you know get in that time machine. Um, it's the joke I love. What do we want? A time machine. When do we want it? Doesn't matter. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's a dead joke, but I love it. That's great. Can I've I, never heard that before. I, I, love, yeah, I love that. Yeah. The, the only one that that, that I have, we have. I've, I've been telling this for a few, quite a few weeks now, but it still makes me laugh because it's, it's a non-sweary one. I want, the, I want the audience to take this Good. one home. Which is a, a and it's, it's the, we're playing the old rules here, a blonde girl. Um, I understand they're not silly. It's just a rule. Don't tell you people, <laughs> yeah. just forgive it. I've got some fat jokes too, and I'm not offended by them. This blonde girl walks into a library and says, can I have a hamburger, please? And the guy behind the counter says, uh, this is a library. And she goes, I'm so sorry. Can I have a hamburger, please? <laughs> I think that's funny. <laughs> Not even a swear word in it. I have been asked, would I would I change anything? And you know, that time machine question, would I go back? I wouldn't change a thing. Not a thing. Yeah, the only thing I've always had, I, I didn't thank my brother at, at the AFI Awards when I won Best Lead Actor or the Investor. I just thought, I, well, I kept making sure I was thanking every person, all the Stressful, little ones you don't want to forget. And you, just, I know, and you... You know, I've got Too much Kate Blanchett, who's just handed me an award, and I've just beat Heath Ledger, who went on to become a, a, a mate. God love him. Um, and you know Gabriel Byrne. I thought I never thought I'd win. Like it's just, it was just mind bending. And I'm on stage holding an award, and I wanted to thank all the little people that got us across that line. And then in my mind, well, of course I'm not going to forget to thank the investor who paid for the entire film <laughs> and my brother who's the genius that made it exist you know what I mean of course I'm not going to forget them anyway good night everyone and I just shit <laughs> so okay so I would I would change that did they my give brother, you shit no my brother always says I want you to stop apologising for it because it makes it sound like it's an issue between us and you know it's not yeah And but it is for me um, so they're that but I wouldn't change anything because I'm exactly where I where I want to be, I'm. You know, I've got the the right partner. We, I've you know, I've been through you know breakups and and girlfriends where things didn't work and cars that have broken me down on the side of the road and all that great stuff. Nothing mm. that's good enough to write a country and western song, country and western song about. You yeah, know? that's the same as everyone. But I am exactly where I want to be. I, you know, I got four fantastic kids, beautiful kids. Dare I say it? It's all the stuff that's cliche. They're healthy. You know, my missus is my best mate. I'm acting. I get it's paid to entertain people. Mm. You know, what would I change? Not a thing. And and from here, what am I going to do? I want to keep acting. You know, do you know? Do I want to be a Hollywood star? Well, I've got six acres with my kids up at you know Mount Macedon in Victoria, and we we love it up there. And you know, I want to be near them a lot. And so you know, what comes my way and comes as long as I'm still acting and getting paid, the dream. I'm done. Mm. What do you think is the best and the worst thing about the business? Best and the worst thing. Um, the best, I mean, for me, the best thing is I'm doing the thing I love. That, that's what it is. But I know you to be more pinpointed about that. Um, oh, look, for me, sitting in an audience for the best bit for me as a, as a fine, finite thing about it is you're sitting there watching a product when it's complete. They take a long while, so you've mm. heard that. So um, sitting in an audience where you get to watch it with the crew and the cast and a few of your family to watch it for the first time, that, that is a thrill. It's a, and, and it's a thrill for someone who wanted to be an actor. When you go and see a movie when you're a kid, when I saw The Karate Kid, I wanted to be that kid. And then I wanted to be that kid in the movie like because I was an actor, you know what yeah. I mean? So kids watch football grounds now. They probably look at them and go, I want to be out there playing. But there's probably some guy that's looking at it going, and I want to be Nathan Buckley. I want to be – I shouldn't have gone with a Collingwood player. I should have gone with a Wigan <laughs> Bulldogs player. 
You could go with anyone. I'm I've not, got no I'm idea. Not a doggies <laughs> member. I should have gone with the Bulldogs. You but. could say anything. I would go. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Yep. Great. Yeah. Yep. Amazing. <laughs> but you know, so you know, for me that, and I'm now, I'm on that screen. So that's that's the best thing. Um, the worst thing. I don't have that much to complain about. And people often, I think, say to me, "Oh, come on." Um, every now and then, you can get stopped on the street by someone when you're just not, you know, one of your kids is ill or or you're just not having a great day. But if that's the hardest thing I've got to deal with, is it that bad? Yeah. Like really? Yeah. And I've got, I know some people going, you know, your anonymity, and that is hard, you lose that. But if you know how to live a life properly, you can make it work. I, I live, I, I'm, I do share myself with people that come up. I find people incredibly polite and they just want to tell you they loved your movie or they loved something about it, good on you, mate. Like, on your J-O, on your Kenny, whatever it is. And you know what? It's coming from a good place. Mm. So if that's as bad as it gets, I, you know, if this was an open line calling now with stuff you have to deal with in your job and get a nurse, get a midwife ring up, you know, get a, mm. a single mother ring up, get someone that works in a third world country. Like seriously, my little shit complaint is going to fall behind every phone call. And I'll go, okay, not as bad as her. <laughs> not as bad as him. Oh, oh, yes, unblocking sewers in the rain. Just Let's just keep Perspective going. is it an is, important thing. If I've got anything to bitch about, it's about the fact I'm not smart enough to realise mm. I've got it good. Are your, are your folks still around? Are they still yeah. with us? Are they yes. proud? Yeah, they are. Yeah, they are. Did they are they as as surprised as you are about how this, or did they sort of know from those early days of you farting on the on the floor, banging on, bang, <laughs> bang on the floor just to make a fart noise? They do tell me they're proud mm. um, a lot, and I mean now it is it's a job I've done it that long that we do discuss it in work terms, but we were you know my mum, I think she still does to be honest keeps a scrapbook. Yeah. That's pretty cute. That's cute. Now I never gets old. I'm not gonna keep a scrapbook. And you know, she can't be keeping a copy of every article, but That's mum's job. That is mum's job in this business. It's every, most people's mums are the ones that have the scrapbook going, and that is just fine. It is. It's. I love it. Mm. I love it. I love it as much as a Sunday roast. <laughs> do I love a Sunday roast? <laughs> right. We're at the final five questions. Done. Uh, biggest regret. I'll go with what I said before. Probably not thanking my brother at the end of my yep. words. It probably is up there. Uh, I don't. I don't. I don't have a longer list. I, I'm, I'm going to put that up there just for now. I'm going to put it up. That's fair. So sometimes, I mean, you don't really need to have one. You know, sometimes yeah. if you get to the point where you're like, actually, I'm in a pretty good place. It's always easy to have regrets. I say when you're not quite where you want to be. Yes, <laughs> I go, wish I'd have taken that opportunity. That's it. Something like that. That's it. But yeah. if you've just chipped away at it and you've gotten to a point where you're content, and it's very hard to sort of find it a regret because even the shitty bits that were horrible at the time, you go, well, I'm here now. I know you kind of get over it. Yeah. Right? And you know what? Women women forget the pain of childbirth. They mm, tell me. Mm. I reckon if you gave me a go at it, I'd still be talking about it. <laughs> going, I, I did that. I can't believe it. That's why men can't deliver the babies. I, I wonder if the world, just for a brief moment, many, many hundreds and hundreds or billions of years ago, if in fact it was the men and the women that gave birth and after the first birth, God just went, everyone back inside, <laughs> this is not working. 
<laughs> the first contraction. Just I'm sorry I made there. a terrible mistake. <laughs> I know. I've, this has been really badly designed. This is the guy, like the first Braxton, his contraction. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I think there's a panel van driving out of my penis with its doors open backwards. No, that is actually, they're fake contractions. They're Braxton Hicks. You've got days to go. I do wonder about that. So I, don't, I never complain about pain or money. Uh, and just so you know, I had made some a couple of, I made a financial decision a long while ago that didn't work well for me. So I've got some expensive ones that you can go, you regret. But you don't put them under regret. You just go, oh, that was a bit stupid. Oops. <laughs> uh, your dream gig. Got it. That's great. That's a good answer. Uh, a big idea that you've still got to get up. I reckon that's going to be the last word. <laughs> last word. Uh, well, see, business things. Well, there you go. That's that is a big broad question. I, I do. Uh, I like um, expanding ideas. I am. I do sit up. I'm one of those guys that wakes up forty times a night and designs stuff in my head or thinks of business ideas. So I've, you know, I'm EPing a few shows. Um, I've got uh, two businesses. I'm just starting now. Um, a film truck business uh, that will do catering, another one that's green rooms, a bar. Um, yeah, I have, I do start little companies. Um, that's great. Yeah, and invent ideas and concepts. And so, not inventing something amazing. I can't, I'm not engineering anything. Yeah. But business ideas, I quite often. But you will there. never not be spinning a million plates. No. <laughs> No, no, no. You won't. Don't even try and say that you will. I don't believe you. Uh, If you weren't doing this, as in working in showbiz, what would you be doing? I would actually go back to doing – I would do production management or event management, probably more production management because the only thing I miss – oh, I shouldn't say only. One of the things I miss about um, life before full-time acting was I – used to build big events mm. and uh, as a production manager or an event manager, you know, sending a venue from um, empty grass to punters in a band and of, like everything, like everything, you know. There's, it's a there's, big job. I never go to an event without looking around and saying, I could never do this. I'm just not that sort of oh, details oriented. Oh, how do I make this happen type of person? The devil's in the detail. Yeah. And you, you plan the whole event. You've got to build the whole event in your head and on paper. Literally, from the first truck person, to how, when you turn up to where you park, to where the gates will open and shut, to where the trucks will fit, and when they're empty, oh, enough room I to would park suck. them, and the angle of the ramp that's coming down, and is it going to meet dirt, and will it rain at that time of the year? And if it is rain and the ground's wet, will the road case get across? And if it does, we've got to put boards oh, down. Oh God, no! And where the boards are, will that kill the grass? <laughs> and if it does, let's use terraplast. And let's, I can just go on for days. And I you lo- like that stuff? Love it. Loved it because it's it's such an achievement. It is. Yeah. It happens really fast. In your mind, it happens slow because you've got to build it up. And if you turn up nervous on the day, you've not done your job right. Because mm. the building of the event, once the trucks get there, you've just got to put out little spot fires. It's in the hands of the gods. Then, it is a bit. A but even yeah. then, well, you actually can't leave it to the gods. You have to become god of that venue and go, even if it rains, I have to find a way to stop the rain getting to the ground. You, you have to reroute nature if you have to because when was the last time you went to a major event and you heard this announcement? Sorry. We're just not ready for you. <laughs> we just honestly, we hadn't anticipated how hard this was to set up. So Adele will be with you in just a few hours. You've never heard it. And if like, you might have a little pub somewhere, but you, it doesn't matter. If someone goes, but what if you lose all the power? Then you, where is your backup power? What if yeah. it pours? I don't know. What have you done to weather protect it? Like seriously, it is, I loved it because it, 
it really is an engineering. You build a city and you pull it apart again, and it happens really fast. And I love wow! It. So I do that. Um, and finally, your advice to people wanting to get into the business. I have being paid to do it has not made any performance more enjoyable. I just loved performing when I and my fondest memories of acting were the 13 years I was in gang show when I first got up in front of a crowd. So as a kid performing on stage, I loved it. I loved the rehearsals. I loved the people I performed with. And a lot of people, I get asked a lot, a lot. Even um, a mate, an old school mate today rang, his daughter wants to do it, what advice have you got? And I say, just tell them if they really want to do it, they need to love the journey because that might be all they get. But how horrible to waste, if I'd have only thought I have to have the paid gig and do it as a profession, if that was all I was focused on, then I may not have enjoyed those 13 years on stage in amateur theatre. And I loved them. I mm. loved them. You couldn't, I didn't, I, there's no way someone could go, if I paid you, would you enjoy it more? And you go, no, you don't know how much. It's like asking someone, if I pay you to love that woman more, your wife, would you love her more? And you go, no, you no, I, <laughs> yeah. I absolutely adore. But what if I paid you to love her more? <laughs> you go, you can't do that. Yeah. If I give you $20, would you like the taste of coriander just that bit more? You go, that's not how taste works. <laughs> yeah. It's not how joy works. Yeah. Um, money's great and you need it. Trust me, I'm not, I'm not an idiot. Mm. When people go, oh, come on. <laughs> yeah. I'm just saying if they want to get into this industry, then enjoy the process because performing an amateur theatre show and getting up in front of a live audience is a thrill. And, it, and if it scares you, great. That's why bungee jumping still works because mm. you feel so good at the end of the rope because you felt so nervous at the top of it before you jumped. And so that's the point. If, if that makes you feel that when you come off stage, that's an accomplishment. There's a lot of great stuff that you can get out of this and you're going to hang out with like-minded people. That's what enjoy the process means. As the sun sets over the water at the Royal Victorian Motor Yacht Club. No, it does. It <laughs> does literally. Look at that. What a, what a lovely way to end a wonderful chat, Shane. Thank you so much for joining me. Pleasure's mine. Thanks for taking the time to have a chat to me. And thanks for being here when I got here. <laughs> thanks for listening to You've Got to Start Somewhere. Thanks. To subscribe to the podcast, check out other episodes, and keep up to date, head to you've got to start somewhere.com. Thanks so much for listening to my chat with Shane Jacobson. I think Shane and I could have chatted all day if he didn't have a family to go home to. Big shout out to, to Clinton Maynard and Ethical Milk for your reviews of the podcast in iTunes. I've also been getting some great suggestions for guests that you would like to see on this show, which are hidden in amongst the iTunes reviews. I am very happy to receive them that way, and I am working very hard to get a few of those guest suggestions up in the next couple of weeks. So I will do my very best. Keep those suggestions coming. Next week, I am going to chat to James Matheson. You would, of course, know him from Australian Idol hosting fame and in the early days Channel V. He was one of the very first winners of the Channel V presenter search and he talks about what it was like walking into a job like that. There was a summer where I just started and I got to go to the big day out in the Gold Coast and in Sydney and Melbourne and I think in one week I went and saw Queens of the Stone Age, Coldplay, PJ Harvey at the drive-in and and that was over the course of one week and i didn't pay for any of that like yeah. i'm given tickets That's your job. this is my job yeah. now i couldn't 
believe it. Yeah. I, was, I was, my head was spinning. I was like, this can't be real. This is a job for yeah. someone who likes music and is in their early 20s. So that was always my dream job without even knowing it. And that will always be the, the high watermark, I reckon. I hope you'll join me for that chat. I'll see you next week. <laughs>